This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to Portable Peeps, our pediatric board review podcast. As always, I'm Sam. And I'm Ryan. And we are so excited to do our GI review for you guys today. So we're going to start with infant GERD. So we're going to review a couple important definitions and some epidemiology for reflux in infants. So GER, without the D, or gastroesophageal reflux, is the passage of gastric content into the esophagus due to the relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. In infants, frequent relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter is associated with gastric distension from large volume feeds. While GER, without the D, is a normal physiologic process in infants, it can often cause distress for caregivers. GERD with a D, or gastroesophageal reflux disease, however, is the passage of gastric contents into the esophagus, resulting in symptoms for the infant. Symptoms include failure to thrive, arching of the back, and irritability. Red flag symptoms that would prompt further workup and suggest against a diagnosis of GERD include bilious emesis, GI bleeding, and projectile emesis. Additionally, if the onset of regurgitation occurs at less than one week of age or greater than 12 months of age in a patient who has never experienced regurgitation, then further investigation is required. Finally, if reflux persists in a patient over 18 months of age, then a referral to a pediatric gastroenterologist should be considered. A thorough history and exam is necessary, and in the absence of red flag symptoms, this is often sufficient to make a diagnosis of GER. Further diagnostic testing is not necessary at that point. So let's discuss treatment options. As mentioned earlier, the correct first intervention is to provide reassurance and offer suggestions to optimize positioning and feeding. 50% of infants less than 3 months of age and 67% of infants at 4 months of age will have at least one episode of regurgitation a day. Following its natural course, only 5% of infants will experience regurgitation after 12 months of age, with most outgrowing their reflux by 7 to 12 months. The optimization of positioning and feeding is often referred to as reflux precautions. These interventions include ensuring appropriate volume feeds for age, recommending frequent burping, and holding upright for 20 to 30 minutes after feeds, and feeding in the side-lying position. And Ryan, do you want to walk us through if these things don't work? Yeah, so if reassurance and optimization do not achieve the desired results, another option is to thicken formula using rice cereal or to offer a commercially prepared formula. Due to the risk for arsenic contamination in rice cereal, though, the preferred recommendation is to offer a commercially prepared thickened formula. While this is an acceptable intervention and the reflux clinical practice guideline from the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN, it's important to note that anti-regurgitant formula have not been proven to decrease reflux when compared to standard infant formula. The next intervention to be considered is to trial a casein hydrosylate formula, such as nutramogen or alimentum, or an amino acid formula, such as Elocare or Neocate. This trial must be allowed for at least two weeks to assess results. 
What's important to remember is that this is not actually a treatment for GERD. The transition to casein hydrosylate or amino acid formula is a treatment, however, for cow milk protein or soy milk protein allergy. While the traditional presentation for cow milk protein allergy is bloody stools, it's also possible that these infants will present with persistent regurgitation and vomiting, which can be indistinguishable from GERD. If any of the prior interventions are unsuccessful, though, it may be time to consider pharmacologic interventions. So many guidelines recommend considering consultation with a pediatric gastroenterologist if pharmacological therapies are being initiated. Histamine 2 receptor antagonists, such as famotidine, decrease acid production by binding to the histamine 2 receptor on the gastric parietal cells. H2RAs are the first-line pharmacological therapy in infants only if all of the previously mentioned interventions fail. The last intervention that we discussed in our case on GERD was a proton pump inhibitor, such as omeprazole. PPIs suppress gastric acid production by irreversibly blocking the proton pump, which is the final step in parietal cell acid secretion. It's important to note, however, that no PPIs are approved in patients less than one year of age. Additionally, a recent systematic review and placebo-controlled trial demonstrated that there was no improvement in GERD-associated symptoms in patients on a PPI as compared to those on a placebo. The bottom line is that GER and GERD can often be very distressing for caregivers. A good relationship between the physician and the caregiver is essential in order to provide reassurance. Following its natural course, GER is very common, and most infants will naturally outgrow these symptoms without any sort of pharmacological intervention. If additional interventions are needed, the formula changes mentioned previously can be considered. If those modifications are unsuccessful, it's worth considering discussion with a pediatric gastroenterologist and possible consideration for pharmacological therapy. All right, so let's walk through inflammatory bowel disease, or known as IBD, which is divided into Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So we'll get into specifics of each, but let's first take a little time to review general characteristics. In the United States, 1.4 million people suffer from IBD, and 25% of patients with IBD are diagnosed during childhood or adolescence. Patients present with linear growth failure, weight loss, fatigue, bloody or non-bloody diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. It's also important to keep in mind that 25% of children will present with extraintestinal manifestations, including oral aptus ulcers, erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, and arthritis. While the exact cause of IBD is unknown, there appears to be a multifactorial contribution. Causative factors include genetic predisposition, alterations in the gut microbiome, defects in the innate and adaptive immune system, and environmental exposures. Interestingly, 20% of newly diagnosed patients will have a first-degree relative with IBD. It's also important to keep in mind that IBD appears to be limited to Western industrialized populations, further supporting the importance of environmental effects on the gut microbiome. While laboratory studies can be helpful in the diagnosis of IBD, it is important to remember that 20% of children will have normal labs at presentation. Patients with IBD can have multiple lab abnormalities, most commonly including elevated inflammatory markers, anemia, thrombocytosis, leukocytosis, and hypoalbuminemia. Biopsies obtained during endoscopy are diagnostic. Treatment options include corticosteroids, aminosalicylates, immunomodulators, and biological agents. Cryptabscesses, lymphoplasmacytic infiltrates, non-caseating granulomas, and pan-the-cell metaplasia can all be seen on the histopathology in IBD from a biopsy obtained by endoscopy. Of these changes, the histologic feature that's unique to Crohn's disease and considered diagnostic is non-caseating granulomas. Crohn's disease is characterized by transmural inflammation affecting any part of the GI tract from mouth to anus. Ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, affects the superficial mucosa in a continuous fashion, including the rectum, and is limited only to the colon. Histologic features of ulcerative colitis include crypt architectural distortion, branching, 
cryptapsis, and lymphoplasmacytic infiltrates. Panacell metaplasia, or the presence of panacells in the distal colon, is seen in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and while suggestive IBD is not specific to either type. And if you guys remember, our next couple of cases were on Wilson's disease, so Ryan's going to take us through that. Yeah, so first we're going to talk about diagnosis for Wilson's disease. So Wilson's disease is caused by the accumulation of copper in the body. There are many symptoms that occur in patients presenting with Wilson's disease, and much of that is dependent on the age of the child since it's due to accumulation over time. Because of this, it's very uncommon for children less than one year of age to develop symptoms. In children over two years of age, they can start exhibiting hepatic symptoms, including incidental findings of increased serum transaminases, hepatomegaly, and fatty liver. But this can eventually lead to more severe hepatic presentations, including acute liver failure, portal hypertension, and decompensated cirrhosis with ascites. Typical age of onset for hemolytic anemia is over seven years of age, and this typically presents as a Coombs-negative hemolytic anemia. This can sometimes be the initial presentation of Wilson's disease, like in the patient we discussed in our case, and can sometimes be precipitated by drugs or infection. The buzzword, though, that you're probably familiar with in Wilson's disease are Kaiser Fleischer rings, which are corneal abnormalities caused by copper deposition on the decimate membrane of the eye. This might not be seen if children are asymptomatic or have mild liver disease. If present, though, it can be seen on a slit lamp exam, typically after 10 years of age, and is almost always present if neurological symptoms are present as well which leads to our next bunch of symptoms, which are neurological and psychological symptoms. These are usually present after 15 years of age, and they can include a myriad of symptoms, including dysarthria, dysphagia, mood and behavior changes, handwriting deterioration and incoordination, resting and intention tremors, and gait disturbances, along with many others. Now, Sam, you want to walk us through the societal recommendations? Absolutely. So the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, or AASLD, uses clinical and biochemical parameters for diagnosis. These include Kaiser Flasher rings on slit lamp exam, serum ceruvoplasmin, and 24-hour urine copper. However, the European Association for the Study of the Liver, or the EASL, and the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or ESPGAN, use the Leipzig score for diagnosis. And these also consider neuropsychiatric symptoms, Coombs negative hemolytic anemia presence, liver copper levels, and ATP7B genetic mutations, in addition to the factors considered by the AASLD. The Leipzig diagnostic criteria allow for highly likely diagnosis of patients if they have a score of four or higher, typically with one disease-causing mutation mixed with clinical and lab criteria. However, if patients have two disease-causing mutations, that automatically makes it highly likely that they have Wilson's disease. And finally, we'll discuss some of the lab abnormalities you'd expect to see in Wilson's disease. So alkaline phosphatase is typically low, which is thought to be due to zinc deficiency. Ceruloplasmin is a copper-carrying protein that binds circulating copper. So it's low in neonates, increases over time in childhood, then decreases slightly during puberty, and this is in normal kids. So because of this, ceruloplasmin is not diagnostic under one year of age. It's typically low in Wilson's disease patients, but up to 20% of patients could have normal ceruloplasmin concentrations. And finally, urinary copper excretion is typically increased during a 24-hour collection. This can be augmented by giving a chelating medicine, which we talk about in our treatment episode, which Ryan's going to walk us through the review for that episode. Yeah, so the treatment for Wilson's disease is divided into initial and maintenance phases. So in the initial phase, all the current guidelines recommend using a chelating agent such as penicillamine or triantine as first-line therapy. Penicillamine was introduced in 1956 and is still the standard treatment for Wilson's disease per the SBN guideline from 2018. 
However, significant adverse side effects are common with D-penicillamine, resulting in drug withdrawal and stopping it in up to 30% of patients. Side effects common during early treatment include sensitivity reactions with fever and cutaneous eruptions, neutropenia or thrombocytopenia, lymphadenopathy, and proteinuria. Then in the medium to long-term treatment range, side effects can include a lupus-like syndrome characterized by hematuria, proteinuria, arthralgia, bone marrow toxicity with severe thrombocytopenia or aplasia, and then also skin changes related to this medicine's anti-collagen effects, such as elastosis perforans, serpenginosa, cutis laxa, pemphigus, lichen planus, and aphthostomatitis. Additionally, food inhibits the absorption of D-penicillamine, so it needs to be taken either an hour before or two hours after meals. Next, we talked about triantine, the other chelator agent, which is triethylene tetramine hydrochloride. Again, this is the second available chelating agent used for treatment of copper excess in Wilson's disease during the initial phase. It was initially used in 1969 as a second-line agent for patients who did not tolerate D-penicillamine, but it's being increasingly used due to its limited side effect profile. However, there's less robust evidence to support triantine as opposed to the more well-studied penicillamine as a first-line chelating agent. Of note, triantine also binds iron, so if a patient also needs iron supplementation, their supplement needs to be taken at a different time of day. The last option for treatment of Wilson's disease are zinc salts. So the proposed mechanism of action is sequestration of copper in enterocytes of the small intestine through induction of metallothionine in enterocytes. Per the 2018 SPAN guideline, this is an increasingly used treatment modality for pre-symptomatic patients and as maintenance therapy after initial therapy with a chelating agent. However, it's still under discussion as to whether or not it's adequate to use zinc salts as monotherapy. It was noted that patients who experienced treatment failure with zinc monotherapy improved after reintroduction of a chelating agent. However, zinc salts have been proven safe for multiple studies for use in pre-symptomatic children, especially given their improved side effect tolerance when compared to penicillamine. Thanks so much for listening, whether this is your first or your 50th episode listening. Yay for 50 episodes. Yeah. And happy studying. Thanks, guys. While this is an acceptable intervention in the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, it may be time to consider pharmacological... I'm Sam. No. Ready? Uh-huh. And serial <laughs> The other two organizations, EASL and ESPGAN, use the Lepsigo. <laughs> oh I hate you for this. <laughs> Absolutely. So, first, I want to acknowledge that Ryan has given me all the hardest words <laughs> <laughs> as I read ahead to the next line. <laughs> okay. And sodium dimercaptopropionyl fall. Yeah, you spelled it wrong. No, I didn't. <laughs> Dimer. Capto. Propane. Knee. <laughs> and sodium dimocaptopropionyl phone. <laughs> That's not dimocapto. <laughs> Kill <Good old> dimocapto. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an acceptable intervention by the North Apparent.
on with a parakin. <laughs> Damn. Nailed it.